0: Father, this morning we desire to uh, focus on you and your nature, your character, who you are, and as we look at uh, some aspects that are fearful and things that people try to avoid, including even many believers, pray that uh, your word would come alive to us to assure us that uh, you as judge are also the one that uh, is a God of grace. We praise you for that. We're the recipients of it. And we desire that if there be anything that might be distracting us, whether plans or things in our mind or sin or whatever, we may confess that, be in full fellowship with you and gain the maximum benefit from your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, back in the book of Romans, starting chapter 2, I see, even though not every... Commentator breaks between chapter one and chapter two. I include chapter two as the next major break in the book of Romans. Now just a reminder, just was reminded of a quote concerning the entire book of Romans. Commentator by the name of Osborne. It says, Have you ever thought about writing the perfect letter? A letter so profound that the reader could only sigh with awe? had its incredible truths. Anyone thought of that? Well, Paul has written just that letter, and that's the book of Romans. Some people consider it the most profound piece of writing ever composed. I praise, but I think it's worthy. There's so much in the book, as you've already seen from just chapter 1. We've spent lots of time looking at it, because it's so, so deep and has so many profound things to say to us. So Paul writes a letter to the Romans, a church he had not visited after becoming a believer. And probably what we have in the book of Romans, because he had desired to visit, is more than likely the theology, the thinking, the principles that he desired to deliver, had he gone and had he been there, and perhaps this is what he did, in some of the other churches where he did write letters. For example, the church at Corinth. It's not so much theological because there were so many problems. He's dealing with problems there. But when he was there, he probably gave them the theology that is contained in the book of Romans. So, another writer, Baxter, says, for the purpose of systematic theology, it is the most important book of the Bible. Another profound statement concerning the book of Romans. We've already seen a lot of theology. We've focused on the wrath of God, chapter 1. focused on the revelation of God, God revealing himself. These are all significant and important doctrines of Scripture. And in chapter 2, I think the major focus is the justice of God. So we're going to look a lot at the justice of God and see... Something of what that means as well as enable us to appreciate it. All of us fear the justice of God because we stand before Him guilty of sin, and no one can stand there, even though even within the church today people try to avoid this concept. Let me give you an overview of the first part of the passage. And you're going to notice that this slide looks identical to the slide I gave you when I gave you an overview of chapter 1. And that's part of the reason I I see this chapter as separate, because I think he shifts a little bit, and I'll give you some more on that. But if you remember, remember in chapter 1, verse 18, how did I summarize that? Mankind under, what? Under God's wrath. Mankind under God's wrath, verse 18. So we have something similar in chapter 2, verse 1. We have the predicament of people that are self-righteous. And we'll look at that verse this morning. In other words, those that judge others but do the same thing. That's self-righteousness. That kind of frames everything that follows. And I think he's also targeting a slightly different audience. The people that had this attitude, as Paul is relaying chapter 1, are probably saying, That's right, Paul, preach it, teach it. Those Gentiles, they are depraved. And they could go down the whole list that Paul lists in verses 30 through 31, actually 29 through 31, concerning Gentiles, typical of Gentiles. So the, the Jews are saying, Preach it, we agree. We're going to read further into your book. Then all of a sudden he changes and shifts to them. And basically the focus is on a self-righteous attitude. I think it's introductory. Now some scholars make a break here and insert three portions. Not only Jew and Gentile, but in the middle, a self-righteous crowd. But in the first century, the ones that were self-righteous were Jews. So I think it applies to them and I think it's introductory to what he's going to talk about beginning in verse 17. If you notice in verse 17, it's pretty clear. But if you bear the name Jew, but I think it goes all the way to verse 1 of chapter 2, and rely upon the law, he's already talked about it in verses 1 through 16, and boast in God. So it almost picks up from what verse 1 says. So, the parallelism I see follows, not only verse 18 with chapter two, verse one, but beginning in verse chapter two verse two through sixteen, we have a section that's kind of explanatory, if you will. Remember in chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-three, we had the reasons why mankind is under wrath. All of mankind, including including Jewish people, all are under wrath. And he gives the reasons for it. In chapter two, he also gives kind of an explanatory section 2 through 16 where he's going to lay out the principles of God's judgment. And this is addressed to an audience that understood the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is full of passages dealing with God as judge and the judgment of God. And there's many historical examples of God as judge. So they were familiar with these things. And what Paul is doing is bringing these to the surface and lays out principles of judgment in order to awaken the conscience of a Jewish audience so that in their thinking, they say, "Uh uh-oh, we're under God's judgment as well, not just Gentiles. So I see chapter 2, verse 1, beginning a new section, and Mm -hmm. on your outline sheet, I title that The Guilt of the Jews or the Jewish Community of the First Century or Jews of any time. Or, by way of application, anyone that takes the attitude, the religious, the self-righteous, those that think somehow they are better than others or somehow will escape God's principles of of judgment. So we have the principles of judgment, chapter 2, verses 2 through 16. And then we have a third section in chapter 1 where we see the pouring out of that wrath or the rendering of wrath. And similarly, in chapter 2, 17 through 29, we have the proof of the guilt of the Jews. And he's going to bring that close to home and uses them by name, beginning in verse 17. And actually, there's a fourth section in this one that we'll talk about later, maybe in a couple of years or so. (laughs) Okay, so that's kind of a broad picture of chapter 2, at least that chapter. But I think the section... Guilt of the Jews goes all the way into chapter 3. We'll get there eventually. So first of all, we have the predicament of the self-righteous. They are under God's judgment. Just as all mankind is under the wrath of God, so also those that think they might escape it are under God's judgment. So let me give you a little brief introduction to the justice of God, kind of a summary Uh, Biblical teaching on this concept. And we have to begin with Genesis 3.15. Now, in my Foundations course, I kind of lay out foundations for all things, and particularly world history. Begins with creation, a perfect creation, where God pronounces the creation very good. No sin. No second law of thermodynamics, no degeneration, no problems, no issues. And then sin enters in chapter 3, and beginning in chapter 3, we have the fall of man, and that is another foundation stone upon creation. And I believe that Genesis 3.15, in a cryptic, not clear way, but given the rest of Scripture... 3.15 3.15 is really a summary of the rest of world history. God is going to deal with humanity, and he's going to resolve the problem of evil. And it begins in Genesis 3.15 with this prediction. That prediction is called by theologians the Protevangelium. And if you know a little Latin or don't even know a little Latin, you can probably figure out what the pro Evangelium is. Proto is kind of what? First. First or the beginning or a prototype. Something that kind of precedes something that follows. Evangelium, pretty easy. Evangel. Evangelism. Gospel, you might even say. So we have the first, what? Announcement of the Gospel. And what God announces is that ultimately He is going to resolve the issue of sin and, evil. and it's going to take all of the rest of world history to resolve it. And it's not going to be until the great white throne judgment at the end of the thousand year or millennial kingdom that the issue of sin is totally and ultimately resolved. So the concept of judgment, the concept of God's justice, judgment is God executing justice will not be resolved until basically the end of world history. But God will deal with it throughout history, beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And here we have the first announcement of God doing that. And in the text, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, this is chapter 3. We have the fall of mankind. And he is basically confronting the man and the woman and pronouncing judgment upon them. But it also includes the the serpent, the agent of Satan that actually brought sin into planet Earth. There's going to be this ongoing struggle, not only between the woman and the one that is being addressed, who is Satan himself, or the agent at least, And between, notice, your seed, your descendants. Now in this context, I think it's broad. It includes the descendants of the woman. Now eventually it's going to focus on a particular descendant. And Paul says singular, a seed. But there's going to be between your seed and her seed. There's going to be an ongoing throughout the rest of world history until evil is dealt with an ongoing battle between evil and the source of it and mankind, the descendants of mankind. Honey, I was just going to say, the your seed he's talking to nope. about Satan. Yes. And so what? And is, her seed, yeah. What is I mean, even, so he did is he procreate. Um, no, I don't think that's what's in view. I think it has those that follow after and are of the same nature of, in fact... When it speaks the son of, for example, in the New Testament, uh, who is it Uh, John called the son of energies. In other words, he has the character, the nature of certain things. So also the seed of of Satan, those that have the characteristics. I think he's referring to the demonic world. There's going to be an ongoing spiritual battle throughout world history until the issue of sin is resolved. So this is long range. This is far reaching. And he, there's the singular part, referring to her seed, he shall bruise you, Satan, on your head. He's going to deal a death blow. He's going to totally resolve the issue of evil. And he's going to crush the head ultimately of Satan and everything associated with him and that will be completed at the end of world history. But it's going to come at a price and you shall bruise him on the heel. There is what theologians believe is an illusion. It's not so clear from Genesis but an illusion to Christ experiencing some damage. In other words, the crucifixion which is not final, which is not total, and it even anticipates, you might say, resurrection. Mm -hmm. So that's the first announcement of the gospel, God dealing in a final and ultimate way with the problem of evil. So that's where you have to go back to when you're talking about the justice of God, because it begins, or we have the revelation of God's justice in the garden, and we have pronouncements concerning righteousness, And unrighteousness. Adam and Eve now are in a state of unrighteousness. God, the judge of the universe, is pronouncing judgment. And he's also announcing that there's a way of escape. And it'll come from the seed of the woman. And what do we have in Genesis chapter 3? We have a sacrifice. There has to be a substitute because mankind cannot atone for his own sin. So there's going to be a temporary sacrifice of an animal and that's going to go through the entire Old Testament where the sacrificial system is in place of mankind because mankind needs a solution and it anticipates the ultimate sacrifice of the bruising of him on the heel or the crucifixion which is the last once and for all sacrifice book of Hebrews emphasizes that aspect. So you have to start in Genesis three fifteen when he in fact in Genesis three to talk about the concept of justice. So that's where the concept begins. And all of us we have a yearning. We have a desire. You might not think about it, but in reality we desire this issue of sin to be resolved. Inwardly all of us have that. In fact you can see it in your children. If you have more than one, you give one child a candy bar and you don't give the second child one, what happens? (laughs) You have rebellion, you have protest, you have anger, you have temper tantrums, whatever. Because that child knows that there's something not right here. There's inequality, there's injustice. He gets something, I don't. So even children have this sense of rightness, this sense of justice, and we yearn for it. We desire it. But then when we think about it and recognize if there's justice, then I will not escape judgment. I will not escape the consequences of sin, and that's part of the concept. So we desire it, and in fact, to kind of illustrate the concept, we see the idea or the concept of judgment all over, all the time. In fact, you see it every day. And we're going to see it ultimately worked out in a spiritual sense. And it has even physical ramifications as well. But just to kind of illustrate it, we know that there must be justice, the necessity of justice. You women know this because you might have a bowl of fruit... And what happens if that bowl stays a few days, let's say a bowl of uh, cherries or whatever, and you see a little bit of mold forming on one of them? What do you do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I do. (laughs) What do you do? Here's a real judge. Pure justice. She tosses the whole thing out. Does anyone have grace? (laughs) Some of you have grace. What do you do? You, You remove that that is decaying so that what? It preserves and you preserve the rest. That's justice. That's a concept of justice. Justice is God intervening to separate out that that destroys so when you separate that one or two cherries that is decaying, uh, you separate it out so that it preserves the others, so that you can eat them. That's justice. That's an illustration of it. That's what God is doing. When God judges every judgment of the Bible, you have two aspects. You have God removing that that is destroying from that that he loves. You see it in the Genesis flood. God brought a worldwide judgment because the whole earth was corrupt. But he also gives grace. In fact, the word grace first time occurs with Noah in the Hebrew text there. And there's one family that is preserved. That family is removed and separated out, just like this illustration. And for men, if you're kind of inclined towards doing mechanical things, You change the oil in a car, why do you do that? The old oil is going to what? Destroy the engine if you don't deal with it. So you remove it. You're separating out that that destroys. That's the concept of justice and judgment. And there's many examples. Craftsmen, as they're working on a piece of art or a piece of furniture, they sand it down to keep what? The splinters from interfering with the not only the beauty but the usefulness of the thing that they are crafting or whatever it may be, whether it be a piece of furniture or whatever. So we see this all over. Because we live in a fallen world, we have to deal with that that is destroying and God does that. Now, as believers, we are to judge ourselves and to constantly cut away those rough edges from our personality, etc. Just another example, a coach will sideline an athlete that has a wrong attitude or is not performing to the point that is necessary to win games. He's basically separating out that that is destroying the rest of the team, that that is preventing success on the athletic field. So you have to separate that out. And a lot of young people learn discipline as a result of athletics. That's part of this concept of judgment. So we yearn for it. We do it all the time. We don't think about it, but we make these decisions to separate out that that destroys from that that we want to preserve. That's justice. That's judgment. Society, we put those, or we should, sometimes we don't, but those that are inclined towards crime, we separate them out as well. That makes sense? And there's other illustrations we can come up with. Here's just a few from different areas, from the home, from work areas, just every aspect we can think of. So that's a little bit of the concept. So justice, God has absolute right because he is creator. And he is perfect judge. And he is the standard. So God has absolute right and authority over his creatures. And his justice and judgment is exercising that authority to preserve that that he loves. So there's a positive aspect. Obviously the negative, but also a positive aspect. So God, in his authority, not only has the right but has, obviously, the will to execute justice. Theologian states it this way, W.G.T. said, justice is that phase of God's holiness, God's separateness, God's transcendence, God's detachment from sin and evil. Justice is that phase of God's holiness which is seen in his treatment of the obedient, in other words, those that conform to his standards, and the disobedient subjects of his government. He is the ultimate authority, the ultimate ruler, the ultimate judge, and he is administering the universe, and he's doing it in an ultimate and absolute way, From our perspective, it's taking all of world history, from the fall of man to the end of world history, to complete. But he does work day by day. In fact, the wrath of God that we saw in chapter 1 is a present tense reality. So that is the working out of justice. That is the working out of wrath being poured out, an aspect of his justice. God dealing with the obedient and disobedient. Are there any obedient? Not really. <laughs> okay, okay. So that's the concept, concept of God's justice and judgment. And we could uh, look up lots of scriptures. And for the sake of time, let's just look up a couple of them. Somebody get Genesis eighteen twenty-five. Who want Craig's got that one. Who wants to do Psalm fifty verse six? Anyone? Mary Lee's willing. One. And just for your notes, we won't look these up. Isaiah thirty three twenty two is another one. We'll, we'll skip that one for now. And if you want a New Testament one, Hebrews twelve twenty three, God as judge. Craig, you got Genesis eighteen twenty five. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. Now this is Abraham talking to God about him bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Keep reading to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now the obvious answer to that is yes, he will. But he's trying to balance, well, there might be some righteous ones. He's thinking in terms of Lot in the city of Sodom. And he is hoping that Lot will be spared ultimately. So he's kind of debating, if you will, or talking to God here to discern something of what God is going to do. But the point being is the judge, basically of the universe, will, in fact, do right. And there's lots of verses that refer to God as judge. Psalm 50, verse 6 is another one. You got that one, Mary Lee? Yes. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself. God himself is judge, and there's literally hundreds of verses in the Old Testament and some in the New Testament as well. Also, relating to God's justice, that's God as judge, God's justice, several references, Job 8.3. Do you want to do that one, Terry? And just for your notes, there's another one, Psalm 33.5. Let's see, which one did you have, Mary Lee? Uh, 56. Okay. you want to do 33.5 also since you're in Psalms? And just for your notes, Isaiah thirty eighteen as well, and in the New Testament, First Peter one seventeen. Terry got uh, Job eight three. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Okay, and the obvious answer is no, because He is the source of justice. He is the righteous one. He is the standard for all justice. He is not going to pervert it. Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love. For okay, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Because righteousness and justice preserves that that he also loves, which is also in that verse. He loves those that he's called to himself. Sin destroys. Justice must be implemented to keep and prevent that that he loves from being destroyed. So we yearn for it, we desire it, but because we are sinners, we fear it, and rightfully so. So God's justice. So God as judge will act sovereignly. And there's verses that are related to a sovereign action of God. So he's going to work as the ultimate authority in the universe. He's also going to work in goodness. In fact, his justice is an expression of his goodness. His goodness is related to his righteousness and justice because it's the process of preserving that that he loves. So there's a relationship there. He also acts in wisdom. He can discern. He can know. He knows the right amount of discipline for his own. He knows the amount of punishment for those that don't know him. So we can't question it. He acts in wisdom. In fact, all of world history is an expression of God acting justly as well as implementing justice. And all of it is wisdom. He's demonstrating certain things throughout world history that we can learn about. Some of those we're going to learn about in uh, Romans chapter 2. He also can execute justice with full power, because he's omnipotent. And we see something of the omnipotent power, for example, at a Genesis flood. Or in a local sense, we can see it poured out in Sodom and Gomorrah. We also saw it poured out on the cross, that's the ultimate judgment. And there's going to be a display of his omnipotent power in judgments, that are still yet in the future. And there's many of them in Scripture. So full power. And it is always according to his righteous standards. He is the standard because he is righteous. He is the law giver. He is the one that reveals what is right and what is wrong. Our culture blurs those lines. But there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And the standards are given to us. It's one of the purposes of the Mosaic Law, to reveal the standards of God's righteousness. And he will perfectly execute and separate that that is evil from that that is good. It's perfectly righteous. God as judge. So those are the scriptures, or some of them, a few of them. There's some distinctions. There is what we might call God's retributive justice, and we can summarize that, is God inflicting penalties. God inflicting penalties. It's part of the executing of justice. And unfortunately, all of us deserve the penalties because we have all violated God's righteous standards. There's also remunerative Justice, how many of you deserve this aspect of justice? This is why it's fearful because none of us deserve that. Yet, God distributes rewards. It's part of His justice, part of His desire. In fact, it's related more to His grace. And believers are undeserving, yet are the recipients of this form of justice. Make sense? What's the first one? Retributive. Okay? So there's the distinctions. Some of the principles and these come right out of chapter 2. In fact, beginning in verse 2, you'll see on the outline sheet the principles of judgment. Number one, it's based on truth. Based on truth. And what we mean by that, in other words, the omniscient God that knows all things sees all actions, sees all attitudes, sees all motivations, and he can see through those that are evil and those that are not evil. And for depraved humanity, there's very few not evil, right? That's why we stand condemned. But it's based on God's omniscient ability to see all things, all actions, everything. And he knows that that is true from that that is not true. We're going to see that in verse 2. That's what summary of verse 2. It's based on truth. First thing. So it's like a court case. Remember from the beginning I said the book of Romans. There's a lot of legal concepts. A lot of legal language. Here's some of them. God is judge. So think of a courtroom. All of the evidence is going to be placed before the judge of the world because he is omnisciently knowing what all that evidence is every action every thought every idea that has passed through our minds god has it before himself so and it's based on that data which is after 60 70 years we accumulate some data there don't we in those attitudes it's based on truth god knows the history of the nation of israel obviously. He also knows our future. He knows everything that the nation of Israel has done. The nation of Israel is under this judgment, and that's what he's talking about here in this context. Secondly, it's based on the fact of inescapability. The Jews thought, well, we're privileged. We are the called. We are the children of God. We are his nation. We are going to escape what the Gentiles will receive. Paul says, no. No. It's inescapable. Nobody escapes. Nobody escapes. Because all, in terms of truthfulness, all have violated God's standards, including Jews. No one escapes. Another principle. Third principle, it's based on conduct. See that over and over. That's going to be stressed in Romans 2. And you're going to have a record of that conduct. That's truth. So God's going to evaluate that dada, that conduct, and it's going to fall short, not only for Gentile, but also for Jew. That's verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2. It's also based on impartiality. No one's going to get favoritism. No one's going to get excessive judgment either. So it's going to be impartial. And the only one that is totally impartial is God himself. So verses 9 and 10 principle of impartiality. We'll go over these when we get to these different points. And then, uh, verses 11 through 16, it's based on revelation. We've already seen that concept. That somewhat reminds us of chapter 1. God has revealed himself to all of mankind, Jew and Gentile. We're talking about general revelation. That was chapter 1. Remember that? Verse 20. Since the creation of the world, God has been revealing himself. All of mankind has a revelation. That makes man what? Accountable. So all men are accountable to that revelation. And the Jews had special revelation. They not only had general revelation, which the Gentiles had, but the Jews had what? The law. If you look at verses 11 through 16, he's going to focus about the law. And he's going to talk about the Jews being accountable to the law. In fact, because they have more revelation, they are more accountable. And there is an inward law that he talks about that the Gentiles, so he's going to contrast the Jews with the Gentiles there. They also have a law written on their hearts, and they will be judged on that revelation. More revelation means we're more accountable. And that was the point of, what is it, verse 20, therefore the Gentiles are what? Without excuse because they have revelation. So also the Jews, in fact, this is how verse 2 begins. The same word is contained in verse 2. We'll look at it in a moment there. So it's based on revelation, and if you get to verse 16, eventually it is based on what? What does verse 16 tell us about? The gospel the revelation of the gospel, the clear gospel message. In fact, when you share the gospel with an unbeliever, you are giving them revelation that's going to make them accountable to that revelation. God can use that, and there's power there. It can awaken within them their need for a Savior. In fact, those that God has called himself, that's what happens. Not always at the first giving of the the gospel, but eventually it works in, in the heart. So, judgment is based on truth, based on the fact that no one escapes, based on conduct, what we actually do, and even our motives, based on an impartial God, impartiality, so it's fair, if you will. It's just. And then fifthly, it's based on revelation. That's a summary of what we'll be doing through verse 16. So we have the, the guilt of all of humanity, chapter 1, 18-32. Now we're going to look at the guilt of Jews, chapter 2, through uh, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 8. So that's an introduction to chapter 2, verse 1. The predicament of the self-righteous. He's going to put them under condemnation right off the bat. And then he's going to review those principles one by one so that they will see that that self righteousness is not going to solve the issue of evil so here's the first sentence one sentence and as we normally do what is the uh, main independent clause of that sentence because everything else in the sentence is related to it anyone you have no excuse and the translators help you by putting a comma you have no excuse Everything else is going to just support this concept of you have no excuse. Come back to that. You have no excuse. There it is. But notice, therefore, you. It's almost like Paul is imagining the Jewish people listening to him relay to all of humanity and in their minds this applies to the Gentile and now he's bringing it home and for the first time he's using the second person, and it's plural, second person, plural. All of you, or if you're Texan, you all, all right, you have no excuse. And notice throughout the passage, every one of you, second person, who passes judgment for in that, that which you judge, second person again, judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. That's verse 1. Verse 3, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment, going back to verse 1, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape? There's the inescapability thing. You're not going to escape, but notice yourself and you again. Verse 4 and 5, or do you again? Think lightly of the riches of God, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Over and over in these first five verses, we have the second person. In fact, it stands out in the Greek text because he hasn't used it before. And then he's going to go back and speak in terms of the third person, beginning in verse 6. But the emphasis there is very clear. So he's talking about people that not only live in Israel today, but Jewish people that have lived in the first century and on. Just couldn't resist giving you a picture of Tel Aviv. That's where we flew in, those that went on the Israel trip. Therefore, so starting at the very beginning of the verse, therefore, in light of what you've been hearing about the Gentiles... And because you've been assimilating into your thinking and been thinking in your mind because you're thinking in your mind, oh, that doesn't apply to us. Therefore, you have no excuse. And the word there is the same word that we have that's translated defense. It's the word where we get the idea of apologetics. It's Just the negation of the word for apologetics. Apologetics is to give a defense. And it could be used in a courtroom. To give a defense to show that you are innocent of a crime. Apologia. Except this word has an alpha before it which negates it. And he's saying you have no defense. In other words, you have no case. You have nothing to bring before the judge and the jury. And in the case of spiritual things, God is both judge and jury. And you have no case, is what he's saying. And the you, I think he's speaking, are those, and he's going to define that, every one of you who passes judgment. Now, I'm not going to have time to get into this today, but there is a proper way. In fact, next week, one of the things I want to bring out is Christian's are, in fact, everyone, is to judge. And I gave you some examples of things that we just normally, we don't think of it as judgment, things that we do judge. And it's necessary. And there's a right thing. So when it speaks of not judging, it's not absolute. He qualifies it in this passage. And we won't get into all of that. But you who pass, passes judgment, and he's going to qualify it. And when he's speaking of judgment... He's talking about a word that is very common in the New Testament over 100 times, I think 115 times in the New Testament. He's using the verb form to judge. Verb form to judge. Krino is the Greek word. It's used not in this context, but in other contexts, is used in the sense of to judge legally or to put someone on trial in a literal sense. The word is used when the Jewish people put Jesus Christ on trial, basically, and they, in fact, judged him to be not the Messiah. They put him on trial before Pilate, and the conclusion was he should die. He should be crucified. He's a false Messiah. That's the idea. So you have it in a literal sense, to, to judge and to put on trial the same word. It's also used to make a decision or a judgment. In other words, it's used in a positive sense. And we have to make good judgments all the time. Same word. But in this context, it's used in a third sense, to judge in a condemning sense. And in this context, to hypocritically put oneself in the place of a judge. And it's hypocritical because... We, or those that do this, and sometimes we do as well, are putting ourselves in the place of God and condemning others. And that's the whole idea of this verse. And that was the tendency of Jewish people. In fact, that was the whole attitude that they had of Jesus Christ. They were judging the judge of the world. They were judging Jesus Christ. They condemned him. We do the same thing to one another sometimes. Very. same thing to God, too, when we don't take what he says as he says it. And we say, oh, well, Yep. I don't like these verses, right? You don't like these <laughs> verses. None of us do. Yep, but that's reality. This is what the Bible teaches. That's the sense that he's using in this context, and we'll pick up at that point next week, and I'll show you some verses where we are to judge, but there's a right way of doing it. And just to kind of conclude, he says, For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. And he uses a different word there. For you who judge, by the way, the word judge here is you, there's two different words, and uh, the first word is used three times. We'll look at the other one next week. For you who judge, practice the same things. There's the hypocritical aspect. In other words, we're putting ourselves above others, and yet we are doing the same thing. That's what's in view here. And he's speaking to a Jewish audience that had this general attitude in terms of the ultimate justice of God as well. He wants to close for us so we can sneak out of here. Cunning. We so much and we these two.